But first, as you know, the ethics commissioner looking into the actions of Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau for his involvement with the WE charity after news reports came about showing that his family members, his wife, his mother, his brother, all actually received financial help, well, were paid for work that they did for the charity. New reports out today as well that family members of Bill Morneau, the federal finance minister, have also been on the payroll or at least have received some money from we. So let's check in with federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh for his take on that. He joins us on the line. Jagmeet, thank you so much for taking some time with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're hearing from uh, the opposition Conservatives. They're now calling for a criminal investigation into uh, the actions of Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, looking at his ties to the WE charity. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think there needs to be a robust investigation. And if there's evidence that leads to a criminal investigation, there should be no hesitation to do that. What really is, is shown here by the details that are emerging from the scandal is that The Liberal government, particularly Prime Minister Trudeau, seems to be so quick to give money to friends and insiders to benefit himself and those close to him, but continues to delay on help to people living with disabilities. There's still no help to Canadians with disabilities throughout this whole pandemic, but he quickly moved to give nearly a billion dollars to his well-connected friends, and it seems that that benefited potentially his family. This is deeply concerning. This is also the third time Justin Trudeau has been the subject of an ethics investigation. Do you think an ethics investigation, though, at this at this point, is that enough? Well, we, it needs to be a thorough investigation. And so I'm not going to prescribe what that is. It may be something beyond an ethics investigation. But what's clear is that the the prime minister continues to do things that enrich or benefit himself or flaunt the rules Uh, but then doesn't do what's necessary for people. And it seems like there's two Prime Minister Trudeaus, one in public who often says all the right things, but in private there seems to be a completely different Prime Minister Trudeau who who makes these decisions to help friends and to flaunt laws and to do engagement activities that require ethics investigations. This is something that that I think Canadians need to see as the two sides of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, there are also reports out t- today, uh, the website Canada Land, I believe, first reported that, that Finance Minister Bill Morneau also, uh, he didn't recuse himself from the consideration of the contract for uh, the WE charity and that he has family members who are paid by the charity. They've either been paid to speak in the past or they're a paid employee of the charity. Uh, do you think that needs to be investigated as well? Absolutely. It's another layer to the to the scandal. It, again, doesn't seem to be just connected to Prime Minister Trudeau, but with the information that's been recently revealed around potentially more uh, uh, finance minister Morneau's family that are also being paid, and the finance minister did not disclose that or at least say, listen, I shouldn't be the one making the decision because I've got family members working in the very same charity. This is all deeply problematic, and it shows exactly what we've been saying, that the Liberal government and, and specifically Prime Minister Shido and now Morneau seem to want to help out their friends, help out those they're connected to. Prime Minister Trudeau, the number now seems to be exceeding almost $350,000 of compensation that has gone to some family member uh, in total with uh, his mom, his brother and others uh, and his wife. And all of this really points to this sense of entitlement, but also the sense that they want to help their close friends 
but not the people that need help the most, Canadians that are struggling, people that, that need help, Canadians living with disabilities. Uh, that, to me, is, is, is very, very problematic. Uh, do you think that the, the scope of the investigation is enough, again, with the Prime Minister being the focus of this? But clearly, uh, others would have had to know. Now, with this news uh, of Finance Minister Bill Morneau's connections to We Charity, uh, this was the Cabinet's consideration. It's not as though uh, Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau made these decisions on their own. Others had to have known this was happening, that uh, there was this history, and that uh, they didn't recuse themselves from voting. Right. This this cuts to to directly to the Liberal Party and to the to the cabinet. There's no question about it. There needs to be a thorough investigation. And in order to make sure it's thorough, I think you've touched on something that we're going to be calling for is that there needs to be a complete waiver of any sort of uh, immunity of the cabinet or cabinet confidentiality. Excuse me. There needs to be a waiver of that confidentiality because those are questions that need to be answered. You know, if the if the cabinet knew about this. You know, they they ought to have done the due diligence to ensure, well, there should be no one that has close family, that even, even has the, the reasonable apprehension of bias. Even if it looks like there's bias, that should not be in any way informing a decision of a government to give money to um, a group. That This is this is deeply problematic, deeply concerning. Uh, everyone should be troubled by this. And there needs to be a really thorough investigation into it. It almost feels a bit like the peeling of the onion, that more and more layers are, are coming to light. Uh, how do you reassure Canadians that there isn't more of this, that, that these are the ones we know about, but that there isn't more of this and this hasn't gone on on a much bigger scale? Well, uh, the, the sad reality is we don't know. We, we, we just learned this through some really great investigative journalism. Canada Land was the first to report on, on Finance Minister Morneau. We learned through the media about the connection to Prime, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's family. We also heard the Prime Minister initially say no, his wife did not receive any compensation. And then it turns out that uh, there's at least $1,400 of compensation that, that, uh, that she received. All of this is just deeply concerning. There is, there's some serious problems here, and there needs to be a fulsome investigation that is not in any way impeded by the Prime Minister or by Cabinet, they need to fully disclose, waive the confidentiality, and Canadians deserve to know the truth. This cuts to the trust that Canadians have in our administration of, of the government, and it needs to be answered. Uh, you mentioned as well uh, the fact that he's not helping the very people that need it to Canadians that whether it's COVID or, or just any day, uh, Canadians that need help. Uh, are you concerned at all that uh, with the financial numbers that we've seen come out to uh, the projected deficit, the projected debt, uh, that the prime minister is going to hide under the cover of COVID-19 and cover up what many would have deemed reckless spending before the pandemic? Well, before the pandemic, I had raised deep concerns around money that was flowing to uh, companies with no strings attached, and that there was not enough disclosure around that. So that's definitely something concerning. Um, my my biggest concern now, though, is that when there's a financial difficulty, and there is, Canada is certainly faced with one, we often see that governments then start to cut the programs that people rely on. In a pandemic, in a crisis, cutting help to people will only make things worse, People, we cannot get out of a, uh, we cannot have an economic recovery if people can't pay their bills, they can't afford food on the table. So we need to make sure people continue to get help. But I'm asking on, I'm calling on the, the federal government, Prime Minister Trudeau, to cut the, the billions of dollars that are given away to the richest Canadians through offshore tax havens and through tax loopholes. 
and that the wealthiest Canadians, those who have fortunes of over $20 million, they're asked to pay uh, their fair share and that, that there should be a tax on the fortunes over $20 million. These are ideas that the Parliamentary Budget Office has said would raise significant revenue. And I think that needs to be the focus. It shouldn't be that working families, everyday people, are the ones that bear the brunt of uh, financial dis- uh, disasters or financial downturns. It should be those who are wealthiest who have the capacity should be who should be paying their fair share. And uh, just before I let you go, I know uh, you have to get going, but there's another story out today on another matter. The Ontario police chiefs are asking for an apology from you about your remarks, saying that the Rideau Hall intruder situation would have ended differently if he had not been white. Uh, they're saying that that is an attack on police officers. They want you to apologize. What do you say to that? Well, say the reality is in this country, there is no question. The evidence has made it clear that if people are black, if they're indigenous, if they're racialized, they're more likely to be killed by the police. They're more likely to be arrested by the police. They're more likely to be beaten up by the police. That's just a sad reality. And to call that out should not should not be something that uh, people are afraid of. They should say, well, we need to fix that. That's something that we need to fix. We need to actually make sure that that's not the case, that if someone is racialized, they're more likely to be beaten up or to be shot or to be killed. That's something that we need to change. And so instead of apologizing for it, we should we should fix it. We should say, let's let's get it. Let's stop this. Let's not let this happen ever again. Right. But to call that out when it happens is one thing to suggest that a scenario would have ended differently. is quite another because you're, you're saying that those officers that responded didn't do their jobs right or, or, or did their jobs based on the fact they were looking at somebody who was white. Well, the reality is just the evidence shows that in Canada, if you are, if one is Indigenous, if someone is Black, if someone is racialized, they're more likely to be killed and they're more likely to be uh, brutalized and more likely to be hurt. That's just a fact. And, and calling that out, pointing out that the outcomes would be different based on someone who is racialized is something that we should say, yeah, that's a fact. Let's change that. Let's improve that. Not to get upset about it. Well, once you get upset in the sense of, I should make someone angry to change it, not angry to say, don't point it out. We've got to point it out. That's the only way we get things done. That's the only thing, way we improve. So you're not going to be apologizing to the Ontario police chiefs? No, no, I, I, that's, not, that's not at all what, what this should be about. This should not be about, uh, it should be about police that's willing to accept that there is clear systemic racism in policing and be prepared to say, yeah, it exists. It's true. The evidence shows it and let's fix it. I don't need them to apologize to me for, for this misjudged placement of their concern. Their concern should be on let's end the mistreatment of people based on the color of their skin. And I hope that that's what they focus on. All right. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we've been talking a lot uh, about the reaction here in BC and how BC has managed to keep its COVID-19 cases low and uh, flatten that curve, a phrase we keep hearing over and over. Not the same thing in the United States, where we're seeing a spike in many states. Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini and find out exactly what is happening south of the border. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us. Happy Friday. Uh, Happy Friday, indeed. What's happening with some of the states that are seeing these spikes? 
Uh, Well, the spikes that we're seeing across the United States are are kind of growing exponentially, uh, growing big in some of the biggest states in the country. But realistically, 41 of the 50 states are posting daily increases now. uh, And then embedded within that is where we're actually seeing states that thought they had it under control also starting to add uh, kind of daily records. And that includes areas like Idaho and Utah and Missouri and Alabama. Uh, But really, all eyes are still on places like Florida, California, Texas. Texas and Arizona because the numbers are just astounding. And and is it groups that are gathering? What is it to the things that have opened prematurely or can we pinpoint it to any particular scenario? So the data doesn't show just yet, but what we're hearing from health experts and notably from Dr. Fauci is that, yes, the reopening of states is what has kind of exacerbated the situation uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, in, in May, when the May, uh, the May long weekend took place over Memorial Day, we saw groups gather together and then we saw spikes a couple of weeks later. We saw massive groups gathering again on July 4th. Uh, those numbers are still not going to come for a couple of weeks. So the numbers we're seeing now are from uh, the number of things and places that have reopened that have allowed people to get back together, which is why you're hearing from Dr. Fauci saying, well, not going back into a shutdown, the United States really needs to claw back and start putting closed signs up again. Otherwise, these numbers aren't going to go anywhere. And at the same time, we keep hearing more and more that the president is saying if school doesn't open up, he's going to stop funding. Yeah, I mean, look, that's kind of a baseless threat coming from the president because schools are funded, obviously, from local tax dollars and at the state level. And while there is some kind of U.S. federal funding that trickles down into schools, it wouldn't be enough that would make a massive difference. Uh, but also, the the president is essentially kind of forcing the hands of parents by saying, look, if you don't give your kids uh, back to the teachers and put them in a classroom, I could potentially make things difficult when it comes to any kind of funding that comes to the school. Uh, and it goes against that kind of uh, recommendation from his own central for disease control uh, that says that limitations and mitigation efforts need to be in place. Otherwise, uh, there runs a risk of further spread. It's unknown how children may be able to transmit this virus when they're around each other in big settings and what can happen back and forth between school administrators and children. And when you're looking at a place like Florida, where school starts in just a couple of weeks, they posted 11,433 new cases today. And doctors say that the, the tests and cases that are being done are not showing the big picture right now. And what do you say about the president's continued claim that it's the testing? It's because they're doing more testing is why we're seeing more cases. It's been proven false over and over again by leading health experts and researchers around the country and really around the world. Because if you look at the charts out of something like New York, uh, their curve has gone down uh, incredibly and is essentially lower than where it was when we started talking about curves. But the number of tests that they're doing are in and around 25 and 30,000 a day. uh, And they're finding very few cases. So it kind of proves the president wrong there. We know that finding more ca- uh, that doing more tests will find more cases, but the the rate of positivity is starting to outpace the number of tests that are going on around the country and that is what is concerning this kind of mixed messaging that is mixed with kind of factual inaccuracies from the White House puts more Americans at danger. And is it all because uh, the president wants things wrapped up? He wants this wrapped up before the election so that he can tout that he was able to get a handle on this virus. And in doing that, he's simply ordering things back to normal when clearly the science is showing something completely different. Yeah, look, it's unclear what the president's true motive is here when he's trying to rush forward with everything, but obviously the election has something big to do with it. He's lagging in the polls big time right now behind Joe Biden. There was actually a, a poll out today or a study that if the election were held tonight, uh, Joe Biden would sweep 
with 400 electoral college votes and essentially blow Donald Trump out of the water. So this is something that is of concern for him. We see that he is struggling in popularity with 32% right now. Two-thirds of the country uh, disapproves of the way the president is handling the situation. So he's really grasping at straws here and trying to use the economy and now education uh, as the way to kind of take control over what little bit of that base is left that has been following him for the last four years. And uh, wanted to ask you to the this pulling out of funding for the the World Health Organization. Where what is happening with that? Well, I mean, so the president has has uh, you know issued his his directive to Congress to say uh, that the intent now is to pull out of the World Health Organization. Obviously, this is going to be potentially detrimental to the agency because the United States is the biggest donor, uh, and cash is obviously important for an agency like that that is attempting to deal with not only this COVID crisis in the world, but a number of health concerns uh, that are going on, especially in developing countries. We do know that uh, Joe Biden has put out a platform that says on day one, if he wins the election, he will reinstate the United States back into the World Health Organization. This kind of withdrawal process is long and drawn out and wouldn't take place until next summer anyways. But it is a big threat. Uh, And, you know, the World Health Organization has faced criticism for the way it's handled this situation. But the president, according to uh, people in the political world and health experts, say he simply just went too far by pulling the U.S. out. All right. And Reggie, just uh, one more question. Looking into the weekend, uh, what are the biggest concerns or where are people focused uh, when we look at the spread of this virus? Well, likely uh, Florida is going to be a huge concern because Disney World is expected to reopen to guests on Saturday. And when you have a a state that's posted 22,000 cases in two days alone this week, uh, that is a a concern, especially in the Miami area where the positive case is 33%, kind of an epicenter within an epicenter. Uh, One kind of good news uh, story coming out of the weekend, the president has canceled his uh, scheduled rally in New Hampshire. He's blaming it on the tropical storm that's brewing off the coast right now. But there was also pushback from health experts in the in the state saying, look, we know that Oklahoma is now pointing to the Trump rally in Tulsa for an increase in numbers. They didn't want the president there. He's not going now. All right. Reggie, always great to get an update from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We were chatting with Richard Zussman earlier in the program about the jobs numbers that were released earlier today, the Labour Force Survey put out by Stats Canada. Taking a look specifically at BC, after three straight months of climbing unemployment rates, the economy in this province is showing some signs of improvement. Again, according to Stats Canada, BC's unemployment rate dropped slightly from 13.4% to 13%, and the economy added one. 118,000 jobs. Well, let's bring in Michelle Mangal, BC's Jobs Minister. Minister, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me on the show this afternoon. I know the Finance Minister talked about a bit of optimism. What do you take from these jobs numbers? I I would say that as well. There's uh, some optimism here. It shows that uh, our economy is starting to get back up and running, that our restart planning is working. It's reflecting what a lot of people are seeing in communities. I think of myself walking down a famous Baker Street in Nelson, B.C. and seeing patios start to be built, those patios getting people on them, safely social distancing at the same time. And so people are coming back to work. So we're seeing that reflected in the job numbers, particularly in the sectors that uh, we see the largest amount of jobs coming back to, which is the accommodation and food services. 
Uh, any concern, though, if we look at the numbers, and we still are looking at pretty big unemployment numbers, again, uh, BC's dropping slightly, which is good news, but lagging behind the national unemployment rate, uh, which is at 12.3%. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to uh, paint a, a picture that everything is, is A-OK. I mean, things are optimistic things are looking good going into the future in terms of what's been happening over the last couple of months but there's a lot of work to do and when we look at the the numbers in terms of our overall unemployment it's it's an interesting number because when you how those numbers are calculated are based on how many people are actually in the workforce looking for work and what we saw during COVID is people stepping back from the workforce and saying, I'm not looking for work right now. I'm not too sure what's going on in the world right now. And I'm, I'm taking a step back. And now that we have a restart plan and we have economic recovery plans about to come out, uh, we see people entering the, the workforce again. And so what that does is that this number actually shows that fact that people are moving back into the workforce. They're seeing that uh, we're doing a good job in British Columbia in terms of making sure people are healthy, people are safe, and that we're reducing the spread of COVID-19. And so they're moving back into the workforce. But still, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that the jobs are there for them as they re-enter. Uh, and there's also a, a large group of people, I don't know how many, but there would be a, a large group as well that are still working, continued working during COVID uh, since it started, but have reduced hours and have reduced salary, which uh, not the best scenario. But does that kind of skew the numbers in, in that they would still show up as employed, but they're not back at the rate and uh, the level they were at before the pandemic? You're absolutely right, Jill, to kind of dig behind those numbers and try to understand what are people's actual stories, especially around this pandemic and what happened to their jobs, their income levels. And and that's exactly what we're seeing is that the majority of jobs that have come back are part-time and they're not full-time. They're not yet fully family-supporting jobs. They are part-time. And that's why I say it really reflects what we're seeing in our communities. Like when I talk about the patios that are opening up, but there's still less tables in the restaurants. And so that means there's less servers or they're still coming back, but they're working at part-time hours, for example. So again, a lot to do. And as we look forward into our planning around economic recovery, but what I see in these numbers is a good show of things coming back and our restart plan working. Uh, what about the numbers though for youth? We're talking about people age 15 to 24. There would be a lot of students in that group with the unemployment rate still at 29.1%. I'm really glad you brought this up, Jill, because this is a, a huge issue. Young people who are often starting their, their uh, work life in uh, the service industry and in accommodation, food services and tourism, they are feeling the biggest hit uh, from the economic impacts of COVID-19. And I was just actually just this uh, morning, I was on a call with uh, business in Vancouver's 30 under 30 earlier in the week. I was on a call with 50 people under 30, all talking about what we need to do, what they see are, are things that need to be done to get them back working in terms of economic recovery. And so we are working with young people to identify specific strategies. We've already been rolling some out, but we want to identify very specific strategies to get young people 
back to work and make sure that they have the opportunities to build their careers. And how does that factor in then with programs, both provincial and there are the federal programs as well, that have been criticized for by people saying, yes, we absolutely needed these programs in the beginning, but it's not good to keep going with programs that don't give any incentive for people to actually get back into the workforce? Well, I mean, there's, I, I understand there's a lot of concern. I speak to biz, small businesses, especially all the time about uh, making sure that people have the incentives to come back to work. But the reality is, is that we are still down hundreds of thousands of jobs and we're trying to bring them back online. We're working to bring them back online, but it's not a quick fix because we have to do things slowly. We have to do things safely and we have to follow the guidelines of Dr. Bonnie Henry in our public health office. And so as we bring those jobs back online, we want to make sure that we're not we're, we're continuing on with a good economic foundation from which to recover, and that's ensuring that people don't end up in extreme poverty as a result of this. That's what really we're all trying to achieve here. And so we have to make sure that those programs continue on, that they go alongside in parallel as we create those jobs and bring them back online. Right. And I think people would agree. Nobody wants somebody to end up living in poverty or far below the poverty line. But there are there is a certain thought process as well that there might be an incentive to if you don't have to go back to work, why not take the rest of the summer off and then deal with it in September? The reality is, though, is if somebody had a job and their job comes back and they choose not to take that job because they would rather um, continue on with CERB, they're actually no longer eligible for CERB and, and the Canada Revenue Agency will deal with that when it comes to tax time. And so uh, people need to be mindful of the rules that are there. They are uh, posted online, they are in the news and so on. People need to be mindful of that and employers should be telling their employees those rules as well. All right. Uh, Minister, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for being available and for chatting today with, uh, to us about this. Thanks so much for your interest in this issue. Take care, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. We've been talking about this throughout the program and certainly no shortage of people wanting to join this conversation. As you've been hearing on the news, federal opposition leader Andrew Scheer is calling for a criminal probe into the WE charity contract. Scheer is also talking about how this situation demonstrates that Justin Trudeau is unwilling to take responsibility and can't tell right from wrong. We talked to Jagmeet Singh about this earlier on the program as well. So let's bring in Elise Mills, Senior Associate at Sussex Strategy. Elise, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Jill, for having me on this glorious, finally a glorious Friday afternoon. <laughs> it is a, a lovely afternoon, absolutely. Uh, you've, you've done conservative strategies, conservative communications for quite some time. Uh, wearing that hat, what, how do you look at this? Well, I, I, I'd actually rather begin with taking the partisanship out of it uh, because, you know, working with premiers in my past and with the former prime minister and also leaders in the United States, I think what we have to look at here is the very unorthodox relationship that the prime minister begins with one of the founders of the We to Me movement, which is the We Charity, which is uh, his name is Carl Kyleberger. And it begins at in 2007 when the then uh, just Justin Trudeau, the guy, was looking at entering politics. Because if you remember, shortly after the death of his father, he began to get a lot of support 
to for to come into politics, run as an MP, and potentially take over the leadership, which he eventually does. And I just want to give a shout out to iPolitics, because if anybody wants to understand what I'm talking about here today, <clears throat> they should go to the timeline that they wrote on July the 3rd, which is where I'm getting quite a bit of this information from. And it goes into things like how, you know, he began work with that, those founders and the WE organization and began to test out his campaign narratives. And then once he... and and. And once he gets elected, he becomes the youth critic for the Liberal Party. The Conservatives are in power at this point, so he's a shadow cabinet minister for youth. And he puts forward a few private members' bills that really uh, are a jumping-off point for the WE charity itself. And I, again, I, I would direct your listeners to go to iPolitics and take a look at this, because I think they'll be astonished to see the relationships. Not only through the legislative side, but the fact that both those founders don't have repeatedly maxed out their donations to Justin Trudeau. And then following it up, the first speech that Trudeau makes as prime minister wasn't to an international delegation or to a U.S. president. It was actually to the We Day um, celebrations. And not many years later, the wife of one of the founders, he promotes and, or sorry, appoints to the Order of Canada. So there's quite a long timeline there. And the reason I wanted to take the politics or sorry, the partisanship out of it is so that your listeners understand that this goes beyond sort of the daily squabbles between conservatives and liberals. Uh, right. And it is an interesting timeline. I've glanced at it. I have not read the entire thing. But do, do you think so? Where was everybody else then when it came to awarding this charity yeah. $900 million? Uh, people know that, that his family is very involved with this. People must know that his mom has spoken at this charity many, many times. Where, where was the guidance or anybody that, said, that might have said to him, oh, wait a minute, this, is not, that, this isn't how you do it? Well, this is this is uh, was one of my main points as I was tweeting along with the story last night. Anybody that's worked, and I pointed this out, any of my followers, and there's many that have worked in government and worked for premiers and prime ministers or senators, understand that even the most incredibly important funding, I would give Veterans Affairs uh, as an example, it is like pulling teeth to go through that process. Whatever gets announced within the budget, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to land the way that you want it to. And when groups come to us and, and have these very serious and legitimate asks for funding, it can take months to get the department on your side. I have friends on the act, funny enough, on the liberal side that have talked about these long Long, decade-long grievances they've had with department officials for not understanding why they wanted to get money rolling out the door. I, I And Jill, you and I have had lots of conversations about government over the, the time that we've known each other, and I am circling on the Privy Council office at this point. I mean, when all is said and done, and if the department doesn't intervene, the, P, the Privy Council office, this PCO, serves as the policy orientated. But, and, and I would say politically sensitive advisory unit to the prime minister and to cabinet, meaning when things get hot like this, 
uh, or there are discrepancies in the relationships, uh, such as we know that Bill Morneau, a foster child of his, currently works in the Charities Tourism Office, and his other daughter has actually had a very long-standing relationship that has benefited both the charity and her extraordinarily well. Um, the fact that none of that came to light, or if it did, it was it was not made public, uh, and, and the Privy Council Office would have being involved in this is is quite frightening, not to mention that the normal push and pull between political staff and department officials obviously wasn't there. And this idea that the Prime Minister is suggesting that the public service was the one that wanted we to outsource what we have always done for our youth in this country is astonishing to me. What about the fact that that they didn't recuse themselves from the decision making, mm-hmm. knowing that that they have these connections to this charity? I think it really speaks to something that's in the DNA, not just with this prime minister, but with liberals in, ge- in, in general, because for me, it speaks to two scandals that we've had. Number one, the sponsorship scandal. This is how exactly, and I was in Ottawa on the Hill at the time, and I was a liberal at the time. Um, this is exactly how the sponsorship scandal began. It began with one or two firms in Quebec, and it sort of bled out as other firms wanted a piece of the action, right? And it would go hand in hand with political contributions or in-kind contributions, like speaking events. Uh, the other one would be the Jody Wilson-Raybould um, and Jane Philpott scandal, where PCO, the former clerk of the Privy Council, actually gets involved and sort of plays rough and tumble with those two women, uh, very senior cabinet ministers. So I think it, it bleeds into both those um, scandals, as far as I'm concerned, which speaks to me being very concerned that we have a breakdown in our department, our breakdown in at our top level with the bureaucracy. I'm not suggesting all. I'm not suggesting it's a virus that has uh, affected all public servants. But there's obviously a problem with the Privy Council Office, Jill. It would appear that way. And there's obviously also a problem with the fact that we now have a, a sitting prime minister who is now for the third time. I mean, it's unprecedented to have a prime minister now undergoing his third ethics investigation. Mm -hmm. And it's not just three ethics investigations. It's also half a dozen allegations about behavior, including, uh, you know, proven allegations around racial impropriety or the blackface scandal, uh, sexual harassment with a female, young female reporter. Uh, What Mr. Trudeau does, and I'm not saying this because he's a liberal prime minister. What I'm saying is somebody that's very fed up with the idea that we're living in the retail politics world versus actually looking to people with expertise and authenticity to lead us in what I think is some of the most serious times. I mean, we're not just electing people domestically now. We're electing people to to speak for us and defend us and promote us internationally in times of pandemics and also, you know, other global crises, including the the concerns that we have around Iran and China and Russia and the idea that our political freedoms or democratic freedoms and rights are are more vulnerable than they have been since World War II. Uh, This speaks to character. And I think if we we weren't in this COVID pandemic, I think that, you know, the, the women and those who claim to be on the social justice side and transparency side of the arguments around government may not be supporting him. 
Because it doesn't seem like he has learned anything from nope. the first two, uh, the, the commission, uh, the investigations or any of it. No, well, it's it's not a question. People speak of arrogance and hubris, but I think it's far more uh, in, in sort of insidious than that. It's in the DNA of that person, right? And that DNA has you know, by osmosis transferred to his right-hand man, which is the finance minister, apparently, which we know from the finance minister's previous scandals around his former firm. I mean, you know, he people have forgotten about that, and they should definitely Google Bill Morneau uh, and, and try and refresh themselves. Because I think COVID is sort of treated as to a case of amnesia. Everything feels like so long ago, and it's hard to remember what some may deem as petty politics, but when you really get into these stories, uh, this isn't about partisanship. It's about a prime minister that believes that, you know, that he's he's more akin to being sort of the ruler and he and, you know, don't do as I do, but do as I say, Um, you know, it's very much emperor with no clothes on. All right, uh, Elise, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this and happy Friday to you. Happy Friday. I hope you have a wonderful weekend.